Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This is Wicked Problems, a show about climate tech. The intersection of capital and technology, people and politics, that will determine the future shape of the world and whether you'd want to live in it. I'm Richard Dillon. We're trying to make people feel empowered by the potential of what could happen, while also recognizing there are changes that will never be reversed. There are political hot potatoes like migration that will not be solved. There is no good choice there. But I think that combination of the reality of the hope with also the reality of where we will be in 2050 is is kind of what makes this, I think, quite unique. It's not right dystopian or utopian very much grounded in the reality of the science if our goal is to get to mars that's not the compounding innovation that is going to solve the climate crisis and i think that's one of the issues as well that we investigate is where we put the money behind the innovation imagining the future influences how that future gets shaped a lot of the tech we use today came about in part because someone sketched it out an idea that would solve a problem often for a character in fiction, even if we didn't know how to do it yet. Arthur C. Clarke came up with satellites in 1941. This is the Soviet Union's first man-made Earth satellite. The designers of mobile phones didn't start from scratch. Scotty, beam me up. And, well, we hope AI doesn't follow another Arthur C. Clarke invention. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. When it comes to climate tech, what imaginings will influence where we'll be by 2050. When I saw that an old friend was about to present a TV show about a climate future in 2050 based on the science of today, I reached out. It's November 2050, and at a make-or-break United Nations summit, the leaders of the world try to halt the runaway impacts of climate change. Mark Little started out as a reporter for RTE, the national broadcaster in Ireland, where I lived for 10 years. Since we got together last for a pint, he'd left journalism to found a startup, Storyful, that verified social media content for news organizations, and then exited when it was acquired by News Corp. He was head of Twitter in Ireland for a stint after that. And then he started an online safety startup that was sold to Spotify, where he and his team now work. Tonight, November 15th, he'll be making a return as a TV presenter. We talk about the show, his climate influences, his history podcast, and we even touch on the social platform where he used to work. He even hints 
that he might not be done in startups. After two successful exits, could climate tech be next? Do check out news.wickedproblems.uk to get our newsletter and episodes like these with myself and co-host Claire Brady, straight to your inbox. Or you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. But now, here's my conversation with Mark Little. Enjoy. Mark Little, so delighted you could join us. Great to see you, Richard. Long time. We've been soldiering as journalists together. Um, great to be back in, in a conversation with you. Gosh, since I last saw you, you've gone on from you know being the the man on the street RTE correspondent in various parts of the world to serial entrepreneur. Stop yes. you before you kill again. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and no, I look back at my career and realize I've only ever had one natural talent, and that's the kind of look around the corner. Um, at big issues or, or technology and, and come back and tell people what I saw without paralyzing them with fear and hopefully giving people a sense of empowerment. So as a journalist, I was a foreign correspondent. As a, an entrepreneur, I had like Theranos levels of exuberance and infallibility. And then more recently as a technology executive, you know, I've been involved in safety by design, essentially trying to make sure we anticipate the unattended consequences of new technologies right. So all of that to say, I'm a storyteller at heart, whether I've been an entrepreneur or a journalist. And that's why, you know, very interested right now in how we tell stories about incredible challenges like artificial intelligence, but more importantly now, climate crisis. And I think one of the things that I'd love to come back to in a moment to some of the connections between some of the work, particularly on misinformation that you had done in some of your previous iterations, and then the climate crisis and some of the work on that now. But can you tell us about the program and, and why people should tune in? So imagine it's 2050. And tonight, the United Nations is going to vote on what is a last ditch package of measures, very radical measures to avert the final catastrophe with climate change. So essentially, what the, is at stake here is sending green helmets into enforce the rules where they're possibly are infringements. Um, huge migrant crisis is happening across the world. And there is now a very thin majority for some sort of radical action. So that's the premise. You will come to us as very much you would come to a current affairs show, whether it's a news night or something similar in Ireland called Primetime. I'm the presenter. I'm doing the usual presentation style. We have an incredible set, which is presented by my co-presenter, Carla O'Brien. That's like augmented reality. She's telling the story so far. We have reporters all over the world. And with a little touch to the ridiculous, we've got a reporter on the moon. And we also then have experts in studio who are real experts in climate change, who are discussing the politics, what's happening. And then we gradually realize that there's stories that we're telling that are incredibly positive uh, about the compounding innovation, for example, in agriculture in Ireland, uh, but also, you know, the, the, the fact that the Amazon, what if the indigenous peoples of Brazil got back control of the Amazon and with international help and support managed to turn away from that tipping point with mm. Earth's long? So again, we're trying to mix this concept of it's not irrational hope in any way. This is a science fiction piece grounded in science. But it's a what if the right policy, the right people, right. the right determination happen to push certain things, what could happen? And to that extent, very clearly, we're trying to make people feel empowered by the potential of what could happen, while also recognizing there are changes that will never be reversed. There are political hot potatoes like migration that will not be solved. There is no good choice there. But I think that combination of 
the reality of the hope with also the reality of where we will be in 2050 is, is kind of what makes this, I think, quite unique. It's not right. dystopian or utopian, very much grounded in the reality of the science. I suppose one of the things that this has been in the ether really for a couple of years, you've seen a lot of science fiction and novels that have come and, and looking at scenarios that are like this. Apple TV recently had its program Extrapolations, which actually begins at a, a fictional cop in the future in Tel Aviv, in 20, which seems increasingly less likely to be happening given other current events, which we will not talk about right now. First of all, how did you get involved? How did, what made you decide to you know, do this project after working on so many different issues over the past few years? Well, I was approached by Lou Source, who did the production studio, and they had, um, it, this is being supported by the Science Foundation Ireland group uh, for a science week, which happens. That's what the setting is. So I was asked to come back. It was novel for me at the time, but I was also very grounded in the work of people like Kim Stanley Robinson, the Ministry of the Future, which was the first time I remember last year reading that, feeling, oh, here's something different. Because until that point, I mean, if we look back, politics and journalism is, has a bias toward the here and now. It mm. cannot depart very far, far from the present. Yeah. Voters have to be rewarded right now. We don't think about the future generations. So traditional debate is locked in that bias toward the present. And then when I looked at creative fiction, for example, it's either so utopian at the end that you have a sense of complacency or so dystopian that you lose all hope. And I think that characterizes a lot of attempts by creative people to tell the story of the future. And I hadn't seen it done well. I, I looked at, for example, Don't Look Up, which imagines the end of the world is farce. It is a, you know, clever uh, idea, but I don't know how well executed it is in the end. Mm. And so I was personally frustrated by the inability to strike the balance between the empowerment, the sense of uh, anxiety and agency that we are failing to see in our politics, in our journalism. And if I think back to the 80s, you know, I'm haunted by that great testimony Carl Sagan gave to the U.S. Congress mm -hmm. in 1985. And I remember one of the senators introducing him says, you know, here we are in the politics of today and you're talking about the politics of tomorrow. And I haven't seen storytelling done right that grounds us in the fact, but gives us the ability to perhaps imagine a future um, which is very different from that presented, obviously, in the present tense. So that's the background to my interest. I have a podcast myself called The History of the Future. I'm always amazed when I think about the internet, for example, that the best description of the future of the internet was David Bowie being interviewed by Jeremy Paxman, I think now 15, 20 years ago. And so yeah. always love the concept of the writer, the creative, is breaking free of the present, but too often finds themselves in a utopia or a dystopia. And I, and I think that was frustrating me. How is this different from some of the other projects that you've been involved with? I don't know how much you, you'd like to say about some of the work you've done since um, leaving journalism full-time and then working initially in Storyful, which you built up as a, a verification service for citizen journalism on, on the social web. Um, and that grew and you exited that business. And then you, you started another Kinzen on kind of online safety. Tell us a little bit about that journey and what made you tempted to come back to be doing this kind of storytelling uh, for a, a mass audience. Yeah, what I noticed when I was involved, particularly in startups, I mean, it was dominated by in the first wave of sort of the Internet technologies by move fast and break things, that famous mantra from the early days of Facebook. And what I was really finding quite resistant to was 
this kind of irrepressible optimism about the future in which regulation or any form of safety uh, was an impediment. And it's still today. We hear it loudly from Silicon Valley thought leaders is, is don't regulate us. Let us move forward as fast as we possibly can. And I just really felt myself resisting that, feeling very uh, resistant to the idea that we were building for a future in which there was no control. And right. so I was obviously attracted by um, startups that were focused on the idea of trying to give people trust in their news feeds, which has been the dominant feature of my career, whether as a journalist or as an entrepreneur. And I, I was delving deeper into this and realizing that we are entering a period uh, in which it is impossible to enter any one of these social media or public forums that have replaced journalism mm-hmm. without being asked to take a side before mm-hmm. you even know what's happening. Just take what's happening right now with Gaza and Israel. You are invited to be on one side or the other. There is right. no common humanity that you can express. And if you take that uh, reality of today, then any issue of consequence in the world from the conflict in Ukraine and Gaza to AI or climate change becomes a zero-sum game. It's where you just can't lose. And therefore, the polarizing debates that are taking place right now, for me, are as big an existential challenge as some of those topics that we've just talked about. If we can't return to some sort of deliberative conversation, we are royally screwed. And so I think this project for me is one example of that. My work uh, to counter things like hate speech, incitement to violence is another. And broadly now, a purpose-driven entrepreneurial spirit, which I think is taking root uh, Mm -hmm. in contrast to that old Silicon Valley mantra of move fast and break things. And I think being in Twitter, in what I now call the old days, I was a good old days. I was a managing director and VP for Twitter, where I learned internally how difficult it is for these corporations uh, to avoid those unintended consequences. So that's been my broad approach and experience. um, And that's what's brought me back a bit like the mafia. You know, you leave journalism, but you never truly leave it. And I'm now back in studio having echoes of the past as well Mm. as echoes of the future. You must have found it pretty satisfying, I guess, to get back in the chair, as it were, or back on the set. Yeah, it was weird. I walked in and, and literally, as I say, I, I didn't expect to hear the echo of the past, but there was a, when I was in 1980, I think it was, I first remember watching a program called Today Tonight, which was the Irish yes. flagship current affairs show. And they had this very iconic font they used on their TT. And there it was on my desk, supposedly 2050, but we're separated <laughs> by 70 years here. So I remember back in watching the famous broadcasters on that show thinking, I want to be there. So it was kind of a, a shock to my system as I pretended to be in 2050, transported back to my my roots as uh, in 1980 as a young wannabe TV journalist. So yeah, it was a tremendous experience. And I think, again, for me personally, this idea of, to use an old line from the Buzzcocks, I've always believed in like being nostalgia for a time yet to come. And I think that's what we've tried to capture in this program, one of the funny scenes, for example, is, as I say, a trip to the moon where a, we won't name the tech billionaire, is essentially building a space colony. And I remember seeing it first going, ah, oh, it's a bit ridiculous. And then I realized that Colin Murphy, who's a playwright who wrote the script here, had taken verbatim mm-hmm. transcripts and excerpted today's rhetoric from some of these tech billionaires. Right. Of this what seemed to be initially kind of this strange character. 
and that again and again what was happening is the actual predictions about the future which feel ridiculous were being drawn from today and that has been i think my experience when i the more i i get involved in this historian of the future stuff i realize the future is ridiculous like if i had we had this conversation richard when we first met let's say back at 2000 23 years ago and i said to you we're going to have a global pandemic that will change the way we live and work we are going yep. to have wars in ukraine gaza and donald trump will be heading possibly for a second term in the white house we would be locked up and therefore i think there is a little bit of a need for storytellers to yep. risk looking a bit ridiculous as long as it's grounded in a series of steps that are perfectly logical. And I think that for me has been the greatest discovery. Um, the secret, I would say, to any successful person in the exponential age is having mm. contradictory thoughts in your brain without going too far. Two, two things can be true at once. I, be, I suppose, yeah, for the, the Simpsons writers who actually also predicted that Donald Trump would be president at one point, Lisa having been his successor in the White House. Um, every historical quirk has happened in the Simpsons. I think that's really thing. disturbing. I, I mean, I got to go back and look to see what else we're in store for. But it is absolutely fascinating. And Colin Murphy, I didn't realize he was the he's the writer. He just had he has a piece. Um, or rather a play that's out. It's the U.S. versus James Joyce, isn't it? But the yes. publication of Ulysses, um, so which is absolutely, I think, gotten terrific reviews. Yes, and, and he's a great journalist. I mean, the team of researchers here are drawn from, and there are some journalists from the present as well involved in the production. So an Irish audience will recognize some of these people, including Colin's work. Mm. Um, what I was really interested was when I got involved in the, the research and the production, my own mindset, so Irish farming, for example, is, is not only the backbone of the economy, it's the backbone of the society. And right now, there's a very polarizing debate pitting farmers as the villains in the climate uh, crisis debate. Uh, right. But we actually had a, a, a experienced young farmer in the studio <laughs> and told the story of what if compounding innovation in sustainable farming was to hit Ireland. And when you think of it through that prism, I must admit it changed my mindset completely. I'm <laughs> One of those people, a city dweller, probably doesn't have the kind of empathy I need to have. But as we brought those fictional characters to life, um, mm. I got a bit choked up, actually. I have to say to you, at the very end of the show, as I'm closing it out, and I wrote the, the, the closing, thinking about that sort of, as Tony Blair used to quote Heaney, the hand of history, feeling this kind of hand of the future, this mm. echo of the future, that my grandkids will look back and say, well, it was blindingly obvious, wasn't it? And we were like, oh, no. And, and I think that twin feeling of when you put this human story in a fictional setting, and then you think about your responsibility to the future generations, something happens. And, and that for me was choking up at the end, right. feeling like I was there. And so that is the skill of the makers of the films we have in the program, the right. writer Colin Murphy, the presenters as well, Carla, had done a great job with these fantastic augmented reality and the researchers who essentially were the truth police <laughs> to make sure <laughs> we never got beyond the reality of what can happen and obviously what has already happened and cannot be changed. So this is a climate tech podcast. So a lot of the people will be very interested when you hear the words compounding innovation. And it's something particularly in the agricultural sector for Ireland, kind of tantalizing things I've seen reported elsewhere about something that features is the amount of insects versus beef that people wind up consuming in this in this imagined future. Um, I just I'm I'm still struggling a little bit about going to Supermax 
and you know getting a cricket burger. But um, well, I tell you what, I, I don't want to give it away. Okay, but I want you to watch, and that is exactly that is exactly the crux of the report we do on the farming and the the imagery for me was stunning. And and I share your uh, your example. And so obviously, I would be somebody who knows that one of the farmers in the piece we have is talking about when the synthetic milk became mm-hmm. so good and so creamy that it's- it was like his life was over. And then his daughter kicks in. And that's when we start talking more about the cricket burger and a little bit more of that. But other things as well, like the bogs of Ireland um, mm. are the greatest protection that we have um, from a lot of the adverse consequences of climate, like flooding. And I think that idea of compounding innovation, I use that phrase very carefully because as a technologist myself, and I work within um, Spotify as my day job, I hear a lot about that idea that it's not about exponential growth, but compounding innovation. One innovation on top of the, the, the next one becomes compounding. And the speed with which a combination of Cambrian explosion can happen in certain sectors for me is something that I know of in technology. Um, so large language models um, over the past five years have given human beings these superpowers to analyze vast amounts of content, for example. Right. And mm. that has happened in the blink of an eye. There is nobody could have predicted back in 2017 we'd be where we are today with generative AI. And I think that kind of example is what I became aware of much more with the making of this program when it comes to things like agriculture um, right. and how quickly things can return to a state of balance if the right decisions are taken. Um, but as someone says in the program, uh, you know, what we have is the wrong policy, not the wrong people. And I sort of feel the same way about technology. If our goal is to get to Mars, that's not the compounding innovation that is going to solve the climate crisis. And I think that's one of the issues as well that we investigate is where we put the money uh, behind the innovation is critical. And it feels to me, and and I think a lot of people that I talk to, that we are at one of these really crossroad moments where we could futz around with different technology stacks for years and years and years. But right now we're in this moment of adoption, right? Where we're heading towards kind of key decisions that are both public and private when it comes to, for example, here in the UK, whether or not to plan for the end of the domestic gas grid, right? Mm -hmm. That's a hugely contentious debate that's only just getting started. If you take it from the point of view of electrify everything, that's a no-brainer. But you have these competing narratives, right? You have a huge amount of vested interests who want to be able to maintain the value of their assets, and some of them for perfectly understandable reasons. There are pensioners who depend upon the dividends that are going to come out from those shares. There are people who, tens of thousands of people who work in some of these industries, and they sometimes you could imagine there might be some motivated reasoning to say that, sure, we can blend 20% of hydrogen into the gas mix and keep it going. But at some point, you have to make a decision. Do we do this or not? Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing a lot of activity online in particular where we have these competing narratives with a huge amount of money behind them. So just with your technologist hat on, having worked in online trust and safety and looking at misinformation over the last few years, any insights about, you mentioned large language models, things that concern you about how that debate online, how are different perceptions about the technology choices we should make, the policies choices we should make, how that's going to unfold over the next couple of years. Yeah, and I think a lot of this goes to the heart of what's wrong with the VC model of funding. And I really think this is something that we don't pay enough attention to. If you take money from a VC, you are now telling that VC that you will be a 10x return. So you will essentially have to grow 
to a point where there's a, a 10 times their investment comes back to you. That colors every single decision of every single day of your journey as an entrepreneur and not right. in a good way. Now, if your ambition, for example, is to um, be acquired and have impact, which is the choice that I faced last October with Spotify, where going deep into one company with the knowledge we had, we could be part of a compounding innovation. But I know the investors were not happy because it was a, whatever, a four or five times return for them. But it was the right decision, not just for the company, but also for the mission and the objective. So I think right. part of what you're describing is that you have to raise vast amounts of capital. Therefore, you have to have an ambition that is about valuation and not impact. It's mm. about the idea of growing the valuation of the company rather than creating real sustained value in a space that should be about sustainability. And that model is contradictory. How, how can you create a sustainable tech space that is mm. built on an unsustainable funding model? And I think that describes why you have these behemoths of the VC world, and I won't mention them, uh, but you know who they are, who tell us no regulation. We've got to get moving quickly. There's no barriers here. It's hard in debates to argue against that. You don't want to be the person that prevents AI creating the, folding, the protein folding we've seen and cures for diseases. But the mm. scale of these ambitions becomes almost megalomaniac if right. it's based on the funding model. The second part is, as I, I really fear for a lot of this compounding innovation coming not from public bodies or universities or academic research, but coming from companies that are now so big that they have essentially a form of regulatory capture. Um, mm. Everybody has to get Sam Altman to agree to a, an effective AI legislation and regulation. And ultimately, then open source innovation suffers publicly funded innovation, which is at the heart of Silicon Valley's story anyway, right. that's ignored and, and demeaned. So that's what I worry about. It's the same thing in working for a company like Twitter. The business model was the problem. We had to farm people with short-term attention because that right. was our business model. Whereas yeah. working for a company like Spotify, it's long-term value, subscription. Now, I think you cannot uh, have a debate about the debate about tech right. without seeing the underlying flaws of the models that fund, sustain uh, the way that we innovate right now in the world. And you talked about earlier about the idea that we need to get back to having some kind of a reasoned debate where we have a shared set of facts. I mean, I guess one question that just aligned to that is what we were just talking about. Do you think that we're going in this environment, in this media environment, in this VC-charged technology environment that affects our media environment, are we are you optimistic or pessimistic that we're going to be able to have the kind of conversations, the kind of public policy conversations, the kind of debates that are necessary to get to the right kind of outcomes when it comes to policy to have, as you say, the, your 2050 scenario that we'll be seeing tonight, that's neither dystopian nor utopian, that it's actually a realistic scenario where there's still a chance. So I think we have to get rid of the era of the, the town square, right? We hear this a lot. We've heard this since the birth of Facebook and Twitter, that we have these big companies that are our public town square. Bullshit. And I think we now know we can call bullshit on that, that it's not natural to have two billion of your closest friends on Instagram having a debate about some issue. So what I get hope from is the bankruptcy of the current social media model. Now, remember, it's not even social media anymore. It's media. The biggest mm -hmm. news channels in the world today are TikTok and Facebook and, and to an extent other people like Instagram and Twitter. So they have been quite clearly shown to be bankrupt. So that's where there's, I think, hope. 
I think there's other hope as well is could we create more deliberative democracy that could be powered by technology? So you will know that in Ireland, we've had citizens assemblies. Yes. In very complex topics like same-sex marriage or abortion, which have been hot-button issues that you well know in Ireland. And through a deliberative process, have come up with proposals that politicians never would have had the, the guts to, to put forward. Now, mm. can that be tech-enabled? I think that's one of the questions that I'm hearing a lot of conversations about. What that might look like is some form of smaller forum that mm. would have some technology that would allow consensus to emerge or to be identified on issues where right now you will be screamed down um, if you try to propose something radical. So for me, we have to move into, I think, smaller deliberative forums when it comes to issues of major import and forget this bullshit about the public town square that mm. can't exist given the current business models of these major platforms. So I suppose I am, you know, again, back to this, um, this balance between two contradictory thoughts, that cognitive dissonance, um, you know, nothing is certain, but everything is possible. And I feel in the case of the debates we are having right now, if there's any plus side on something like the Gaza-Israel frenzy that we have online, mm. it's to show that it's not fit for purpose in a world right. that requires people to start from the same common position. I can tell you that nuclear power is wrong. That's fine. We need to be able to have a reasoned debate about that, which starts in the, the reality of our common yeah. shared humanity. I have watched with very great interest, as have many people, the Citizens Assembly or Citizens Jury model that Ireland has, has put to such great effect. And you hear a lot, there's a lot of research that it seems to be a model that not only in academia gets a lot of exploration, but also in the activist movement as one of their kind of primary demands in some cases for the way that different national kind of jurisdictions might move forward on this. I, I just went to check because while we were talking, I thought, oh, maybe Mark's gone to Blue Sky. Yes. Have you, and as it turns out, you have. How are you, yes. I have found that the, the climate community, particularly over the last month, has really exploded on Blue Sky. And, and uh, it's something where the kind of discussions again, without using the town square analogy, that one used to see in smaller pockets before things became quite so algorithmically charged in the massive platforms that you could have a, these kind of reasoned discussions that I think on the early days on, of social, the social web you know, were the kind of things that attracted people in the first place. Are you finding that there are pockets not necessarily endorsing any brand, but that right. uh, you're finding these kind of reasoned discussions that are more possible today? Um, I'd like to say yes. I, I have to say I'm a little skeptical. Um, I am on Blue Sky. It's my drug of choice. Um, I think LinkedIn actually should be very effective as an alternative to Twitter, mm. believe it or not. I think Definitely. Mastodon is quite good for certain communities where there's a huge um, burden put upon expertise on Mastodon. Right. I feel a little bit more democratic in Blue Sky. The underlying protocols are actually in some ways more interesting than the actual form of debate, which I still think can be quite you know one-sided where you, you seek out your friend who you know, basically backs up your biases. Right. But the, first of all, the content moderation is federated or is, is basically decentralized. So mm -hmm. you get to choose the game you want to play. You know, if you want to put no filter or you want to apply certain um, protections for yourself against people who would attack you. And then the open uh, publisher protocol that it's developed on, to, which means essentially we will move toward a social media where it's possible to communicate from Blue Sky to Instagram and back again, a bit like yep. email um, of yep. the, you know, the day, Hotmail to, to Google. Mm -hmm. So I think that's those two features, I think, are probably the secret sauce that mm -hmm. will make a platform, whether it's Blue Sky or another one, 
um, much more popular because it will return power to the user. Yeah. And finally, I'm haunted by when I worked for Twitter, we had a team called Tribes, which um, essentially worked out when you arrived at Twitter, could we get you quickly to the conversation that defined your place, profession, right. passion? And mm. we kind of gave it up because we wanted to show you the 11 players from Real Madrid instead of the 25 fan clubs in your native language for Real right. Madrid. And right. I think that was a missing opportunity. And again, that was the business model that took over. But we invested heavily in places like um, Twitter, in communities that could be protected. People could be verified based on real credibility in their community. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of work going on in the good old days in Twitter, which um, unfortunately is now long, no longer Twitter, or at least um, the, the, the one that I remember. Not one you recognize. I mean, I, I'm hesitant to ask, but uh, have you have you peeked back into the platform just yeah, to see how things have gone? Yeah, I'm a lurker. Um, I, I, you know, but I, I, it breaks my heart because the innovation that I was uh, part of helping um, accelerate back when Twitter was created was this open source intelligence movement. The people yeah. I work with really pioneer that. And it's heartbreaking to see that being destroyed as it is right now, particularly given what's happening uh, in Gaza and Israel. So that is a, you know, I, I, I have a personal stake in many ways um, and it does break my heart. I don't in any way uh, feel the same sort of um, uh, kind of joy that some people feel maybe at seeing Elon dumping his millions down the toilet or his billions. Uh, but I lurk. Yeah, I occasionally pop in, see what's happening and get out as quickly as possible these days. Guilty pleasure, but uh, you know it has to be done. Schadenfreude is not just a drug; it's uh, it's a way of life. Um, right, look, Mark, you've been very generous with your time. Really oh, appreciate you, you being able to join us. So looking forward to watching this tonight. Um, where else can people find you with your coordinates, other than your your drug of choice, Blue Sky, um, yeah. which we'll we'll put in the show notes if that's all right. Where else can people find yeah, you? Yeah, I, I think it, for me, it's it's between LinkedIn and and, and Blue Sky. Um, and right now, it's this project we're working on is kind of the only thing I have uh, in the journalism space. A podcast called The History of the Future. First season was more about politics and our debate, and the second season is more about the culture um, that is shaping the future. So again, trying to look into the crystal ball and stop listening to the echoes of the past, fixating on the present and thinking about the echoes of the future that we can, we can download in the present moment. So yeah, they're the things I'm really excited by uh, at the moment. We'll look forward to having those in the show notes and listeners should check those out. Final question. You have been a serial entrepreneur. You have gone into corporate a couple of times. You have now dipped your toe, well, more than a toe into the climate space in terms of really digging in for this particular project. Are you now tempted to have a third iteration of Mark Little as a serial entrepreneur in the climate tech space? I kind of promised my wife I would never do it again, that she should shoot me uh, if I ever did a startup again. Um, but at the same time, you know, like I feel, again, this, this moment we're in is like no other in human history. And to have this series of things happening from artificial intelligence to climate crisis, but also climate tech, to the idea that we're not powerless in this moment. And whatever I do, I want to be part of the communication of that message. We have a hand as citizens, as, as investors, as technologists, on a, on a balance that pushes a positive outcome and makes it more likely. And I think that's the evangelist for that agency in a time of anxiety and accelerating change. 
that's where I want to be. I don't know what form that will take. Like I say, my, my wife will probably smother me in my sleep if I try to do another startup. But again, you can probably hear and see like a serial killer. <laughs> I someone stops me and it's like an infection. You never quite get over the first two times. So yeah, we'll never, never say never, but I, I probably will tend more toward the communication than then building the, the products again, which yeah, definitely is someone else's job, I think. The next time I'm around your neck of the woods, I'll have to take you down to Finnegan's and Docky for that pint, and we can uh, we can talk this over, and maybe we'll see if we can uh, get your missus to just maybe see the future as a, as an opportunity to feed your habit and also help the world. I will I will buy the pints, and as you know, best ideas in the world have come out of Irish pubs, but they get forgotten very quickly after the fourth or fifth pint. That's the big danger. That is always the danger. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Delightful to talk to you. Looking forward to that pint. Thank you. Looking forward to it as well. Cheers. Thanks to Mark Little for joining us. Even if you're not in Ireland, you should be able to tune in, even without a VPN, tonight at 9.35 UK and Irish time, and indeed on playback at the RTE Player at rte.ie stroke player. We'll be back on Saturday with another episode of Wicked Problems. You can find other episodes with myself and co-host Claire Brady, speaking to CEOs, investors, analysts, journalists, and more wherever you get your podcasts. And do sign up for our newsletter, at news.wickedproblems.uk. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think. You can find our coordinates, links to the things Mark and I spoke about in the show notes. And if you enjoyed the conversation, consider leaving us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find the show. We'll leave you with a bit of preview of Tomorrow Tonight, Ireland 2050. It's November 2050, and at a make-or-break United Nations summit, the leaders of the world try to halt the runaway impacts of climate change. Today, that has to end. Join me, Mark Little, and Carla O'Brien as we guide you through this seismic night. And yet here we are, in crisis. With expert analysts in studio. Really, the stakes couldn't be higher tonight. There has been an entire industry of climate disinformation. Nobody wants to believe that they chose this future. And reporters all over the world. Will we soon see green helmets being sent in to enforce climate action? This could be planet Earth's last chance to save itself, and the outcome is still too close to call. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>